Physical Therapy at LSU Sciences Center in New Orleans. Today I'm very lucky to have two distinguished colleagues on to discuss management of vestibular patients in the acute care environment. The two colleagues I have on are Nicole Van Hooken and Colin Grove. Nicole, how do you introduce yourself? Um, I have been a physical therapist for almost eight years now. I work at UW Hospital and Clinics in Madison, Wisconsin. I, my practice has been mostly in inpatient rehab, working with a variety of patients, um, from neurological cases to traumatic brain injuries, um, to multiple traumas and uh, amputations. Um, I have been doing vestibular rehab, or had some focus on vestibular rehab for the past five years or so. And um, I have had some additional training and education in that area. Um, and then next up is Colin. Well, hello, I'm Colin. I have been practicing at the UW Hospital and Clinics for 20 years. I've practiced in a variety of settings, including acute care, rehab, and outpatient. My entire practice is working with neurologically involved patients and patients who have dizziness. I also coordinate our vestibular response rehabilitation program here at UW Hospital and Clinics. And I've been working in the area of vestibular rehabilitation since 1998. Great. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to have such esteemed colleagues on the phone right now. My next question for you is, what service do vestibular patients typically come from? I guess, who are, who are the physicians referring patients to you? You know, at UB Hospital, there really isn't one particular or position that we can consult from. Um, many of the consults come from our OT and PT colleagues, where they're working with the patient and they identify something something else is going on than just kind of the normal lightheadedness that a lot of times people assume is what is the cause of patient dizziness. Um, and um, our PT colleagues, that's when the therapists um, that work in the care some other stuff that comes from physicians all the time um, tend to be more vague in their consults. So a lot of times they'll say treat for BPTV or perform dictalpec maneuver. This tends to be more of a default order when our physicians are either unsure of the actual cause of the patient's dizziness or are unaware of how true BPTV presents. So then what we do as PTs, we're able to perform our assessments to help with the differential diagnosis and then perform education to physician colleagues on um, kind of what to different vestibular disorders present as. We're also fortunate to have to be able to work with a couple of neurotologists and neurosurgeons, a team of neurosurgeons as well. And so, for example, we'll also receive consults from the neurotologists who have performed a vestibular schwannoma resection for a patient, and those patients are seen on the acute neurology service on the neurology neurosurgery floor. And um, I to that, too, that that is probably the most on service would be the neurology service. That is where most of our central vestibular disorders are admitted, and a lot of our patients who've had stroke or traumatic brain injury, um, multiple sclerosis or migraine, they are admitted to that service, and dizziness is a lot of times a secondary condition that they are experiencing. Okay, great. Um, so I used to work in the acute care environment, so I'm you know, very familiar with that environment. It comes with its own 
stresses and challenges and barriers that sometimes impact um, ideal physical therapy, but I know acute care therapists are really good about getting around. So my question to you is, what are some of the challenges or barriers that you face in conducting vestibular rehab techniques at your facility? I think there's kind of three things that I think impact most. The first thing is time. I mean, we are all very busy, and um, a lot of times these patients require increased time to get a thorough um, examination um, completed. So sometimes we might not be able to do the full exam in one session, um, and we have to split it between two days, or we kind of do a, um, a little shortened version of a full examination so that it, we can really help kind of get an idea of uh, their potential diagnosis and then initiate some treatment. And then that also helps us with our referral for follow-up therapy um, if they need to go to outpatient um, therapy or, um, or maybe have other referrals from that. Um, the other thing that always tends to be a challenge is equipment. So it's really hard to carry everything around with you that you need to when you're going to multiple units and multiple floors. So we have um, identified some very specific balance assessments that require very little to no equipment, so that helps the, um, be able to have more objective measures in what we're doing. And then the lack of um, goggles, you know, to be able to really truly see nystagmus, you know, um, we luckily at UW Hospital have video goggles, but that isn't true for most acute care hospitals. So you have to be creative in how you can be able to assess nystagmus without fixation being present. And then the last challenge is just the acuity and severity of these patients. I mean, a lot of them um, have significant cognitive impairments, um, significant mobility impairments, and that impacts every part of your examination. And we'll discuss some of that in just a little bit. Colin, do you have anything to add to that? I think you've covered it quite well. All right. Okay, great. The speaking of PT exam, what are some examination techniques that you use, and do you have to modify them in any way, shape, or form uh, to to accommodate the setting? Um, yes, we'll, we'll kind of start with um, the examination techniques. So when I get a vestibular consult, I always take a thorough bedside exam. So um, I want to get a detailed objective history of their symptoms. So the purpose of this is to determine the onset, duration, and intensity of the patient's disease. Um, it also helps us, um, it's also important to identify what alleviates or provokes their patient's, uh, the patient's symptoms, and all of this information is going to help guide your clinical decision making and help guide the rest of the examination. Um, I think the most important part of the subjective um, questioning is to really listen to what the patient is saying and then answering the most appropriate, you know, very appropriate follow um, questions. It's not uncommon that a patient will say, oh, I'm really dizzy and I'm dizzy all day. Well, you can, with follow-up question, you can really kind of um, narrow that down to saying, like, what are your initial symptoms and how do you feel the rest of the day? Um, I've had people who said, well, I feel dizzy in the room spending all day. With further question, they say, oh, I get really dizzy and it lasts a minute when I get out of bed, but then I feel kind of just off the rest of the day. And that gives me a different picture of really what's going on. I agree. I think the history is really your guide. It guides what you're going to do in the next steps. I feel like it gives you at least 75% of what you need to know. And in a sense, the purpose of the exam is to 
confirm the working diagnosis that you already have in your head from listening to what your patient has just described to you in terms of their symptoms and the difficulty that they have. It guides the prioritization of your exam as well, and that can really help when you're in a time-crunched acute care setting. As Nicole said a few minutes ago, you may not be able to complete an entire exam in one day. So if your patient is describing they get lightheaded upon getting out of bed, you know, instantly you're thinking, well, maybe this is orthostatic hypotension, and so you're going back there, orthostatic PPs. However, if they say that they are having positional symptoms, they get dizzy when they roll over in bed, you might be thinking about PPV, and so then you'll go into your ocular motor exam and positional tests instead, versus the patient that comes into the hospital with the acute onset of uh, really abrupt hearing loss and spinning vertigo, you might be thinking, well, this may be a case of labyrinthitis, and so you'll go into more of a standard exam with ocular motor balance, gait, and case ability types of tests. Good. Yeah, I can't agree more. I think uh, history is the basis, of, the thorough history is the basis of so much what we do. Would you so, add? I, I, think, I think that all sounds fantastic. So what modifications to your evaluation treatment techniques um, do you have to make to the acute care setting? Specifically, um, the setting comes with its own challenge of equipment, um, lines and tubes, or any other environmental barriers. I know when I first started doing vestibular stuff in the acute care, in particularly having to modify the hall pike dicks for the fact that if you were doing it bedside, you didn't have a mat in the hospital that had um, hard barriers top and then the bottom of the bed. Yes, Tom, do you want to take the lead with that one, Dirk? So, you know, I'll start with saying that in terms of the exam that we do here, there are components of our exam that uh, comprise what is called the HINTS exam. And HINTS is an acronym that stands for Head Impulse Nystagmus Test of Skew. And this is an exam that was described by Tan and colleagues in 2009. It's a particularly good bedside screening test. It helps to identify danger signs and uh, in terms of looking for central eye signs, for example. And this test battery is, is very brief. It can be done in a minute, but even those simple ocular motor exam techniques may need to be modified based on whether or not you have a patient with cognitive impairment uh, or, for example, they have difficulty following instructions. Um, some, um, for the, as you mentioned about the positional testing, that we actually commonly modify um, positional testing. Um, you know, the things that I've done is I remove the headboard and then I'm able to lay the patient back and get the extension over the end of the bed. Um, some therapists will perform that procedure with laying the patient across the bed so that their head is um, so we're kind of laying the short way of the bed. And either modification will help you achieve the need of extension and rotation. Um, some patients are unable to obtain the needed extension, cervical extension rotation. Um, there are some modifications you can do to successfully complete uh, your positional testing. So the way I do this is our beds, you can trendelenburg them so the head of the bed is down. So I trendelenburg the bed 
they'll either use wedges or pillows, so they bring them down. Their head is resting on the bed, um, and then they're kind of in a semi-supine position, being propped up by uh, pillows and wedges at 45 degrees. Um, this worked very well. I had a lot of success with this technique, but you always need two, sometimes three people, depending on the patient's mobility restrictions. You need uh, an, extra, an extra person to help kind of maneuver them and get them in the position, and then you need another person to operate the bed controls. I often, families around, I often ask the family to do the bed controls because that's uh, something that's pretty simple to do. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit just to talk about some more parts of our um, assessments. So with our BPPD patients and with all of our um, dizzy patients, there is a um, kind of order of tests that I do to help me with my differential. So Colin just mentioned about the HINTS exam. Um, Typically, the order that I do things in is when I walk into the patient's room, I'm first observing head posture. So if they have, um, if the head is tilted in one direction or the other, this is going to tell you that maybe they have a potential skew deviation that they're compensating for. You're going to look at eye alignment by performing ocular range of motion, which is going to identify a cranial nerve or ocular muscle impairment. Um, I next will perform a cover test, which helps detect a skew deviation to business. And uh, as Colin mentioned, this is part of the HINTS exam. Um, next, I'll perform static vestibular function by looking for nystagmus with and without fixation. And, and we'll help differenti differentiate between central and peripheral disorders. Another way to determine if there's a central cause for a patient's dizziness is by performing a functional eye movement assessment by observing saccades. And then I will do a dynamic vestibular function assessment by doing the head and mouth test. Um, and then we go into the balance assessment um, as able to specifically look at vestibular function. We look at the modified clinical test of sensory interaction and balance and the DGI or the four-item DGI. And poor performance on these tests indicate the presence of a vestibular impairment or increased fall risk. And you know. We do have to sometimes modify these tests, or we're unable to perform these tests due to um, cognitive impairments or cervical sign precautions um, or patient's anxiety. So sometimes um, we can't get a full, clear picture of what's going on, um, but we do our best. Yeah, we've chosen some of these specific tests, like the four-item TGI or the modified CATSIB, because um, they do give us several advantages, brief for our time crunch colleagues, they're objective, they don't require a lot of equipment, they're sensitive to detecting vestibular problems, and sensitive to detecting change over time, and they can be used across settings. So when a cognitive outpatient therapy is picking up someone that has been discharged from a hospital, they may be able to do the same types of examination measures and continue to guide their treatment based on the same measures that were done in acute care. I think that's one of the important aspects of something like the foreign and DGI can help you with selection of your various interventions. And for our patients who are unable to perform these standardized assessments, um, a lot of times I'm just looking at more static sitting or static um, standing because they're not able to um, walk without significant assistance or um, even stand without significant assistance, but this can kind of just even give you a general idea of where they're at. 
Good. I'm really glad to see, um, you know, especially increasing use of objectives measures in the acute care setting because I think sometimes they don't get utilized as much as they should. So um, sounds great what you guys are doing. So in terms of handling that with the equipment, because even though, like you mentioned, both of those tests require very minimal equipment, they still require some, like the foam for the modified DGI and, you know, the cones or boxes to step over, or, I'm sorry, the foam the modified SITSIB and cones or boxes to step over for the DGI. So do you go in anticipating that you may do these tests and come to the patient's room with this equipment, or do you have like a space where you usually hide it? How does that work out logistically for you? Um, so we actually have both. So I say in acute care, um, when uh, our acute care therapists, they probably rarely perform the full DGI unless they're on um, inpatient rehab or on the um, neurology unit. And we have a therapy gym, inpatient rehab, and a separate gym that's close to the um, neuro unit where they have some of this equipment available. For the modified uh, 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 we have done, um, we have two pieces of foam available on inpatient rehab, so it's not uncommon that some of our acute care therapists will come and, and grab it and, and go up to do their um, assessment using that and they bring it back down. So you do have to have a little bit of planning uh, when um, you're going in to see a patient. And this isn't probably initially done on the initial evaluation. It's going to be done on a follow-up treatment uh, because it's just hard to bring everything that you might anticipate. So we have cubby holes that we were trying to stash more equipment. It's been a, uh, a goal of our acute care to make sure that we are doing more objective assessments. And we have been uh, brainstorming and problem solving on how can we do these assessments and um, the, and have the equipment that we need to um, perform them accurately. Mm -hmm. well, well, the like a, I like the idea of a cubby hole. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most basic pieces of equipment that probably just about any therapist can have on all the time is a watch, right? And you can use a watch to perform various time tests or a stopwatch in your pocket. You know, tests like five times sit to stand. That's a quick and easy test. It's a time test. It's objective. It's been used in patients with vestibular disorders. Um, Nicole has been very good about leading the way in terms of using gait speed as a measure of outcome in our patients at EW Hospital as well. And again, it's, and a, also, timed, it's a timed measure. Right? Yeah, and also you can do the tug quite easily, especially with the space yeah. restrictions and acute care. Exactly. And, and it's actually fun. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say it's funny that you mentioned that because here at our school, I think um, people, especially younger individuals, don't wear watches or carry stopwatches as much anymore. So we actually had to make it a requirement for our students, a timepiece requirement that they are required to have some kind of a timepiece with them when they come in for testing because usually they wouldn't carry it with them. Um, but also I've had where I've allowed students to use cell phones. So not sure what policies are for cell phone use, but cell phones are nice because they have that stopwatch as well, so you have to have it on. That's right, and stashing a bunch of stopwatches in a drawer works too. That's one of the, one of the strategies that we use at another site. Great. Um, so with the speed that people tend to move through acute care, they move through acute care so quickly. So do you get a chance to follow up much with treatment? Or do you usually just evaluate once, make your discharge recommendations, or make your acute care recommendations and move on? Um, you know, that really it depends. I mean, obviously, the, um, when patient is, um, 
what they should be submitted for than what their discharge date is. So um, if someone's submitted for acute vestibular issue associated with like a neuritis or labyrinthitis, a lot of times you're just seeing them for an evaluation because they discharge home rather quickly. Um, for acoustic neuroma patients, um, we'll see them three to four times prior to their um, discharge. Um, if a patient's dizziness is secondary, is a secondary condition, so say someone's here because they were in a car accident, have multiple fractures, and and also PPV, we're going to see them more frequently. The same thing with a stroke, um, a stroke patient who has maybe a history of a hypofunction, um, and they decompensate a little bit for that. So with those patients, we're definitely seeing them more frequently. We're um, we have different priorities um, depending on the diagnosis, how often we get to see them. So I know our neuro patients were able to be, um, have staff to be able to see those patients more frequently. The same thing with our multiple trauma patients and um, our ortho patients. Uh, and a lot of these patients also tend to discharge to our institution rehab unit. So what's nice about that is that we're seeing them for an hour to an hour and a half every day. And we can really give them a lot of treatment um, to help address their vestibular impairments and um, dizziness. Um, for um, our patients with BPPV, sometimes they, if um, we get, especially their short stay or observation patients, a lot of times it's like that's our one shot. So we, we're going in there and we're hoping that we get it. And if we, but I always recommend follow up with these patients, even if I'm confident that their BPPV has resolved. Um, I want them to have follow up to, um, to perform further balance assessments in case I didn't have time to get to those and to really truly make sure that's resolved. Um, and then for our, um, when our acute uh, peripheral vestibular disorders come into the hospital, what, we, what we're doing with these patients is a lot of times it's education. I'm like, why they have the symptoms, what to expect in terms of progression or resolution of their symptoms. We're going to figure out how can they get home and how can they mobilize. Are they going to need a walker? Are they going to need a cane? Um, and then help set up outpatient therapy because that's going to be really important for, for them. Um, and then for our central vestibular disorders, we are going to be focusing on balance retraining, symptom management, and habituation of their symptoms, and then compensation techniques as needed. Colin, do you have anything to add to that? I think I would just add, just in terms of broad categories of interventions and for those patients with peripheral vestibular disorders, adaptation exercises like stabilizations, OVOR times one, for example, and that's one of the primary go-to interventions for patients that fall into that category versus for patients with central disorders, you know, habituation is your mainstay intervention with them. And in other words, trying to desensitize them to either movement of themselves or movement of the visual surround versus someone with bilateral hypofunction. Perhaps this is a patient that's been hospitalized for very serious infection and they've been placed on ototoxic medications and they come out of the hospital with a bilateral hypofunction. And for those patients, we may be teaching things like compensatory saccades, definitely love an assistive device. I think one of the things, I loved all the interventions that you talk about, but one of the things that I think is most important that you guys do is just the education aspect. Because I think a lot of times these patients tend to fall through the cracks and you know, just the education and recommending follow-up services is huge so that the patients don't become chronic and that their uh, social isolation or work isolation grows. And of course, you know, that won't help their symptoms at all. Yeah. 
We share um, resources across our sites as well. So what we've tried to do is maintain some continuity between the kind of education that our patients are receiving on the acute services and with what they're receiving on the outpatient services. So when they do discharge to home, they're hearing a consistent message across the continuum of care. Good. I'm sure that's very helpful for your patients. Um, so seeing discharge recommendations, we all know that that's um, a huge role of physical therapy in the acute care setting. So do your patients often go home or do you uh, recommend them going to rehab? And then what kind of services would you typically recommend they receive post-acute care? So a lot of the vestibular patients that we see in the hospital are here for other medical reasons. So they often will discharge to subacute or acute rehab to con kind of continue um, addressing their impairments associated with those medical reasons. From those that discharge home, um, I, I tend to go to my social worker or case manager and say we need to have them follow up with um, a that specializes in vestibular rehab and um, will look up um, and I believe that the APTA website um, that has a lot of the uh, vestibular specialists listed, or um, I am familiar with some that are in the area. Um, we typically don't, I, at, in acute care, I typically don't make referrals outside of therapy. Um, or if I, if I need to, I'll talk with the physician first to see like, if they feel that ENT needs to get involved when they're in acute care. Um, a lot of times for the more complex cases, ENT is already consulted during their hospital admission. Um, anything you need to, would like to add to that, Colin? I'd only just echo how valuable the resource that the vestibular special interest group has put together with the map of vestibular providers, how valuable that resource has been to us. We use that all the time, and we use the search functions provided by ABPTS in terms of searching for either neurologic or geriatric specialist, for example. And then we also use some of the resources online from the Vestibular Disorders Association in terms of trying to identify places to make referrals because since we're a tertiary care center, our patients are coming from you know often far-flung places, and so we need to send them home and identify therapists closer to home that we may not know personally, but we can identify a therapist for them through those resources. Okay, great. I think you guys provide a lot of uh, really good information. So maybe if now each one of you could discuss a sample case or two to highlight um, some of the things that you've discussed in these questions, maybe going through from um, referral to examination, evaluation, and some follow-up treatment and discuss those patients' outcomes. Um, well, the first case that um, I have is a 60-year-old female who was admitted to the hospital secondary to sepsis from a UTI. Uh, she went into septic shock, she developed encephalopathy, and then, um, and then had seizures. Due to her prolonged hospital stay and multiple medical issues, she became debilitated, had some cognitive impairments, uh, specifically attention and memory, and balance impairments. So because of those things, she was discharged from acute care to inpatient rehab. Um, she began to report dizziness fairly early on in her rehab stay. She had lightheadedness and weakness. She was really fairly vague on what provoked her symptoms. She wasn't a great historian, um, mostly due to her memory issues. She did say her symptoms um, increased performing more challenging activities, and they improved with rest. It's important to note 
patient had a past medical history significant for anxiety. And um, lightheadedness is a common symptom associated with anxiety. However, if you did deny feeling anxious or nervous when during the session, I performed a blood pressure assessment, and she was, in fact, orthopedic. So we addressed it by encouraging increased food intake. She was really restricting how much she was drinking because she didn't want to have to go to the bathroom that frequently, which is fairly common that we see in the hospital. Um, we got her in compression garments, and we just talked about easing into positions. And those um, things helped manage um, her dropping blood pressure. However, she continued to report dizziness. So again, she just had a really difficult time expressing her symptoms. So like what provoked and what relieved them, um, uh, the intensity even, she was just very vague. And again, this was mostly due to her cognitive impairment. She did deny dizziness when in a supported position, lying down or rolling in bed. So that can kind of help us guide us in what direction we need to go. Um, she said she had the most difficulty when turning her head and looking around. And so she started avoiding these movements. Um, her dizziness did not impact her ability to perform mobility tasks or ADLs, and nor did it require use of vestibular suppressant or antibiotic medications. So that's a good thing. Um, she was reporting symptoms, but it wasn't impacting her um, daily activities at the time. So what I did is I performed a full bedside exam um, uh, on her, including an eye exam. The testing was complicated by her decreased attention to tasks and anxiety with testing. So we had to really encourage her to um, perform the, the um, tasks that I was asking her to do, and then just a lot of cues to focus on what we were asking her to do. Her ocular range of motion, cover tests, smooth pursuits, the cat were all normal. Um, she did have impaired DOR. Um, she had some difficulty keeping um, fixed, her eyes fixed on the target, but it was really hard um, to get an accurate head impulse test or dynamic um, visual acuity test because she guarded so much and she restricted movement, she just would not let me move her head. Um, I did ask the patient to kind of do a self-VOR, so I had her hold up a piece of paper and had her turn her head. Um, and she said the target didn't blur at all, but this was at a very slow speed and it was a self-selected speed. So based on this information, I wasn't getting a lot on exactly what was causing her dizziness. Um, we did some balance assessments, and she was scoring below norms for the dynamic gait index, the TUG, the BERG, the five times the stand, and the modified SIB. Um, and she um, was unable to perform condition four on that test without falling. So you know, this, this isn't a very clear-cut picture. And this isn't uncommon for some of the patients that we see in acute care. Sometimes it isn't. You know, it isn't like flashing lights and goes to that. Sometimes it's, it's you're unclear. Um, so I kind of started working like, what can I rule out? So I ruled out EPTV. Um, um, I ruled out vestibular neuritis or labor incitus, Meniere's disease, just based on her symptom description and course. They weren't consistent with those pathologies. Um, she was demonstrating difficulty integrating vestibular sensory input, as seen in her balance testing. So my working diagnosis was potentially a mixed cause. Um, I think it was a combination of her anxiety and potentially a component also. What I did decide to do was I was going to try to uh, treat her symptoms. So I gave her horizontal and vertical uh, VOR exercises to work on situation, as well as to encourage her to begin moving into these positions since she was restricting her motion. 
Um, I continue to work on her balance, focusing on dynamic gait activities, decreasing how much she's using her arms for support, giving her ambulating, crowded, busy environment, um, as well as those giving her tasks that she was very successful in to help, can, to help decrease anxiety um, that she felt with mobility and movement. And that tend to help kind of have that balance of um, give her a little bit of a confidence boost that, yes, she can do these things, but also give her um, other tasks that are more challenging. Um, she began to um, decrease um, how often she was reporting dizziness during um, our PT sessions, but she continued to report dizziness during her other therapy sessions, and the therapist would come to me and say, you know, um, this patient still is getting dizzy. So I um, spoke with my case manager, and we set up outpatient PT appointments with the vestibular therapist um, so she could get continued workup and progression of her exercises. She was discharged from our unit using a four-wheeled worker to help promote independent household and new mobility, um, as well as just to help increase her confidence in performing daily tasks. So um, as I mentioned previously, this isn't uncommon that sometimes we just don't know, and we don't have the equipment on acute care to um, make it, uh, to do some more as objective testing. So that's why the referral is so important to do to make sure that these patients are getting follow-up. Colin, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that uh, I think follow-up in this case is a really good idea. This is someone that we probably would want to follow up, not just with therapy, but with ENT as well. We may want to do vestibular function tests with her. I think central causes are possible, but you also wonder about, you know, bilateral hypofunction. Was there some sort of partial loss related to the medication she was given to the hospital? Perhaps, and perhaps not. Maybe it was just inactivity. She was hospitalized for a long time. Maybe she had got to the point where she was so deconditioned, so inactive, that she no longer knows how to effectively use her vestibular system. I'd say you know, we probably are missing a diagnosis in perhaps 3% of the cases that we see. It's a pretty high number where we truly can't identify a specific um, cause or the person's problem. Now, the second case that we want to share with you is a case involving a patient that has BPPD. And these are cases that Nicole and I often share, or we have shared in the past. Nicole's been able to effectively treat some pretty complicated folks, including individual spinal cord injury that's effectively treated for BPPV. But this is a different case, and I'll, I'll let her lead that. So with this case, um, I was consulted from another PT to come and see this patient of hers. She said that the patient um, was reporting a lot of dizziness with moving in bed, rolling side to side, um, and that it sounds like this was a, she had a long history of this. So she was an older woman, and she was close to her 80s. Um, and she was in the secondary to a bowel, a bowel obstruction. She had a fairly complex past medical history with multiple abdominal surgeries. And so she's been in and out of the hospital and in and out of nursing homes um, for uh, uh, several weeks. So when I went in um, to see her and begin my um, assessment, she was describing room spinning dizziness with rolling in bed and transitions that she said lasted less than a minute. So I love it when people say this because I'm like, oh, you know, I, I, it's not so ambiguous. You, you're like, okay, this is kind of leading me where I need to go. I'm starting to think, oh, it's just something like BPPV. 
Um, what complicated it a little bit is that she also described feelings of weakness when she was up and walking around. So she said, you know, she would, you know, roll in bed, get dizzy. That would last briefly, and then she'd get up and walk, and she'd feel really, really weak, and she just didn't feel right in her head. Um, and when she was up and walking, she was using um, a walker and had assistance. So um, with further questioning, she reported a several month history of dizziness with movement in bed. And she did go see her family doctor, and he prescribed her clinic to treat this. Um, she reports that the current symptoms that she gets when she rolls in bed um, as the same as what she had been experiencing in the past. She denied taking any necklizine since she's been in the hospital, so I was glad to hear that because that can um, impact um, our ability to really get a good picture of what's going on when we're doing our eye exam. But she did have Zofran available, and she requested some Zofran prior to finishing our examination as she was already feeling nauseous. So a full bedside exam was performed except for balance assessment, um, and there were no abnormalities observed. Um, and we were able to perform this with our video frontal goggles. She did have limited C-spine um, range of motion associated to arthritis, but otherwise her C-spine was clear. We did a blood pressure assessment, and it revealed that she was becoming orthostatic standing. And I think um, we were able to correlate that with um, the cause of the weakness that she was experiencing. She said, you know, yeah, weak, and then she sat down, and she felt better. Uh, from positional testing, and we used the um, have the bed down feature, so we should down break the bed because of her limited range of motion. Um, we felt it would be better to keep her head supported on the bed. Um, and um, in the left Dix hall pike position, we saw a strong, positive off-feeding left rotational nystagmus that lasted for about 30 seconds, and she had significant symptoms through spinning. All of their positional testing was negative. Um, we repeated the testing and her nystagmus um, and symptoms fatigue. So this is pretty clear that she does have BPPV, uh, left um, posterior canal BPPV, to be more specific. Um, Typically what I do when I get a positive test is I spend some time really educating my patients about BPPV and her options for treatment. So I said we could kind of do a wait and see approach, so we'll be doing treatment. She was very agreeable to doing the um, treatment and trying to get this resolved because she's been actually dealing with this for months. Three from channel, three position maneuver. At the time of the examination, um, we repeat it three times. An extra person to assist with the mobility component because um, she needed extra assistance. And um, again, I used the head of the down feature um, to perform the repositioning. The way this works is the head of the bed down is I bring the patient back, head resting on the bed, um, and hold them at the um, she was able She had a little bit of rotation, and we got the rest of the rotation by log rolling her. And then so we started down into her left, and then we log roll her all the way to her right to get that um, rotation to, as you would turn a head and just move in the whole body. And then get her almost so that she's almost head down um, for the, the third position. And that's when I typically will try to get that head level. And then after that, we have them sit up. So and that works really well. I have a variety of patients with a variety of abilities. And um, sometimes you need two or three people, but we're able to do it. Um, so the next day, the primary therapist was back, and after the primary therapist um, helped that she felt comfortable um, reassessing the patient, and she continued to um, have symptoms, 
And so she performed the CAN-03 positioning um, maneuvers more times, and her symptoms were completely resolved. She um, denied any further dizziness. So that was great. I'm always happy when we can get, I'm happier when we get in the last session, but sometimes it takes two, and luckily she was still in the hospital for us to do that follow-up. Um, at the time of examination, I wasn't able to do balance testing, as mentioned, just because it took us about 70 minutes just to do the eye exam and positional testing and then um, the repositioning maneuvers. Part of that was because we need the nurse to do a and part of it was um, it took ever longer for us to do everything with her because of mobility restrictions. The primary therapist did say that she would follow up with balance testing at a later date. Um, the physician was discharged to a SNF um, prior to continued rehab, um, prior to discharge home for continued rehab. So I always like these types of cases because um, we can really do good. I mean, she's been dealing with this for months and months and was given a medication for it um, when we were able to clear her. And hopefully um, she is able to progress with her mobility and, and um, improve her balance and that she doesn't get these disease symptoms again. The Thank case you. shows how you're able to adapt to a patient's particular impairments and to still complete an effective um, session of examination and treatment. And I think it also highlights, too, a couple of other aspects of following the literature in terms of best practice. And we know that it's typically more successful to repeat repositioning maneuvers several times in a session, perhaps three times in a session, and that it's reasonable to expect it to take two or three sessions to resolve or help manage a patient's BPPV. And that's, that's a rule of thumb, I'd say, that we use, too, in that if, if a patient isn't resolving after three sessions, it's time to, to rethink, reevaluate, and decide, OK, is this really BPPV that I'm seeing, or is this maybe something else? If you get beyond that three-session limit, it's time to reflect, reassess, in my view. And then I also like the fact that there's follow-up or balance testing because we know the literature suggests about half of patients who have BPPV continue to have balance impairments after their BPPV is managed, after the vertigo is gone. And so it's really important to do that as well. Yeah, I agree, Colin. Good insights. And I would also say that I think especially I see this a lot in elderly patients with BPPV, especially if they've had it for a long time and haven't been treated, that because of their activity restriction, just their activity and aerobic status has gone down and they have just gotten really weak. And some, some of the exercises I do are just a basic walking program or strengthening program um, because they've just lost so much in that time. I couldn't agree more. Every, every patient of mine gets some sort of aerobic program. Either we start it, it help initiate them if they haven't been an exerciser, or we talk about the program that they have ongoing and I encourage them to either continue that or give them suggestions for how to, to maybe modify or increase their intensity. Mm -hmm. I also feel like our, oh, say our elderly patients, a lot of times they describe their symptoms in the traditional way. They don't say, like, I have room-fitting dizziness. A lot of times they'll use other terms. Um, I think that sometimes can lead people in the wrong direction. So, um, and I think that's why they get misdiagnosed when they really, really do have BPPD. So, making that that thorough um, subjective history is really going to be important, especially with these patients. 
Well, I thank you guys for participating in this podcast. I think you provided some really good insight and guidance uh, for others to follow in your path in um, managing these patients in the setting. Is there any anything else, any other fun points that you can think of that you would love to add? Not that I think of, Colin. I think this has been a wonderful opportunity, and I just thank the, the State of Their Special Interest Group for inviting us to participate. Okay, thank you again.